0: Second Corinthians is actually Paul's third letter addressed to this church. I should say at least his third letter. First Corinthians five nine, which we studied in the past, says I wrote to you in my epistle letter not to keep company with sexually immoral people. So in first Corinthians Paul says, I I wrote you before. We don't have that first letter preserved for us. And this is the only subject matter that we have from that epistle is don't keep company with sexually immoral people. And Paul addresses that in 2 Corinthians, of course, and says, uh, you know, if I meant people of the world, you'd have to go out of the world. But I'm talking about those who claim to be believers and are living in this way. 2 Corinthians is a more personal and less doctrinal letter than 1 Corinthians. But never fear, there's plenty of doctrine in the letter. Paul's authority and even his integrity have been challenged by the Corinthians. Not everyone in the church, but many in the church. And others who have come to Corinth after Paul have challenged his apostleship. The church has been visited by false apostles, been influenced by their teachings and accusations against Paul. And this is very common in Paul's Uh, missionary journeys and even in other regions there's the opposition of the enemy that's brought. The opposition of those who uh, dispute his apostleship and the opposition of those who say well you have to keep the law in order to be saved. Opposition to the gospel. Well Paul had said previously he was coming to them and then did not come. He addresses that in this letter. He spends Some time defending his apostolic authority and rebuking the false teachers, uh, but not because he's concerned for himself, but rather because he's concerned for them. He boasts, and he is ashamed of his boasting, of the Lord's calling and ministry through him. But he does this also for their sakes, that they not be led astray from the truth. Paul knew beyond a possible doubt his calling and authority, so he's very bold in stating the truth of these things for their sake. There's almost complete unanimity among scholars that Second Corinthians was indeed written by Paul, and we know there are always going to be a few scholars, no matter what, that are going to dispute anything that that's said you know and uh, you know we trust in the Word of God, not in what any particular scholars say. Like 1 uh, Corinthians, this bo- this letter is cited by numerous church leaders in the 2nd century, such as Clement, Ire- Irenaeus, Polycarp. They all uh, cite this letter. It's dated by many in the mid-50s and slightly earlier by some. It was probably written within a year or so of 1 Corinthians. Um, we have the expo- expositional teachings of 1 Corinthians out on the website if you want to Review that book. We know that Paul's first visit to Corinth was during his second missionary journey and during the term of the proconsul Gallio, uh, And this man held office from 51 to 53 A.D. And that gives us the beginning of the time frame of the letters that were written to Corinth. On his third missionary journey, Paul returned to Ephesus and he stayed there for two years. And during this stay, a delegation from Corinth visited him asking Paul's advice on many matters. It was in answer to these queries that 1 Corinthians was written. The apostle later became very anxious to find out how the Corinthians had reacted to his letter, especially to the section concerning the disciplining of a sinning member. So he left Ephesus for Troas where he hoped to meet Titus. However, failing to do so, he crossed over into Macedonia, and it was here that Titus came with news, both good and bad. There was the good news that the discipline had been successful, and there was the bad news that these false teachers were working among them and had, uh, were having an effect in the fellowship. There's a postscript cited in the King James Version that indicates that this letter was written from Philippi in Macedonia, uh, some believe it was written from Ephesus before Paul left there. But The scriptural time frame of the letter would be in the events early in Acts chapter 20. If we look there in Acts 20 uh, verse 1, it says, After the uproar had ceased, and you recall the uproar was, uh, Great is Diana of the Ephesians, or Artemis of the Ephesians. And they had this big to-do, and they chanted this for two hours, and they were they were ready to string Paul up and anybody else associated with him. And Paul wanted to go in and defend himself. And the disciples wouldn't let him because they knew they probably wouldn't see Paul again in this life unless the Lord raised him. You know, So it says, after the uproar had ceased, Paul called the disciples to himself, embraced them, and departed to go to Macedonia. And when he had gone over that region and encouraged them with many words, he came to Greece. And so no doubt in Greece he uh, came back and was with the Corinthian church during this time period, and he stayed three months. When the Jews plotted against him as he was about to sail to Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia, and Sopater of Berea com- accompanied him to Asia, also Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians, and Gaius of Derby, and Timothy, and Tychicus and Trophimus of Asia. These men going ahead waited for us at Troas and we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread and in five days joined them at Troas where we stayed seven days. And so it would have been during this time frame that Paul um, penned this letter back to them. William McDonald says in the first epistle Paul is seen primarily as a teacher but in the second he occupies the role of a pastor. If you listen carefully, you will hear the heartbeat of one who really loved the people of God and gave himself for their welfare. I don't think there's any doubt about that. The things that Paul suffered, he suffered on behalf of the welfare of the church. So in 2 Corinthians in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, it says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God which is at, is at Corinth with all the saints who are who are in all Achaia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul identifies himself by name in all of his epistles with the possible exception of Hebrews where the writer is not identified. Some believe Paul wrote Hebrews, others not. Um, they identify different ones who may have and so we'll talk about that when we get to Hebrews. If we get to Hebrews. <laughs> Um, so, you know, that letter we know is from the Lord, uh, no doubt. Just reading it to get the witness of the Spirit, but we don't know the human author uh, absolutely. He also tells them he's an apostle by the will of God. MacDonald again says, There were those in Corinth who raised a question as to whether Paul had ever really been commissioned by the Lord. His answer is that he did not choose the ministry by his own will. Neither was he ordained by men, but he had been sent into the work by Christ Jesus through the will of God. It's important that whatever you are, you are that by the will of God. For Paul, he knew his calling through very dramatic circumstances. This personal appearance of Jesus Christ as he was on the road to Damascus to arrest Christians. When he finally realized who Jesus is, uh, Paul never looked back. He retained the zeal he demonstrated as a persecutor of the church of God, but he began to behave in the opposite manner. He knew beyond a doubt that he was called to be an apostle by the will of God. MacDonald again says, It was the consciousness of this divine call that sustained the apostle during many bitter hours. Oftentimes, when in, when in the service of Christ, he was pressed beyond measure, he might well have given up and gone home if he had not had the assurance of a divine call. Now, by the way, you also have a divine call by the will of God, if you believed in Him. There's a call upon your life. It varies you know, among us. It's important, whatever our calling or leading or disposition, that what we are, we are by the will of God and not by our own will. God has a will for each of us. Much of God's will for believers is in common. The universal will at the commandments of God But he also has a specific will for each of us. Our task is to discover the specific will of God and to abide in and walk in that will. Now, maybe a lifelong endeavor as the apostles, they were appointed for life to that office. Or maybe something for a time. Uh, For example, Philip was a deacon in the church in Jerusalem. But later he ministered as an evangelist in Caesarea. And we saw the Lord blessing his evangelist endeavors before that when he was in Samaria, when he was with the Ethiopian eunuch. So he had that gift of evangelism, there's no doubt. Others may see or confirm God's calling or gift in you, but it's important that you have confirmation from the Lord so that you may be confident in God's direction as Paul was. So we seek the Lord. Step out in faith and follow the leading of the Spirit. Paul intends for this epistle to circulate among the churches of Achaia, uh, the southern portion of Greece. Macedonia was in the northern part of Greece. And so he mentions all those in Achaia because he intends for this letter to be uh, read other places besides Corinth. Paul, Paul also gives his standard greeting of grace and peace to the saints in Corinth. Grace precedes peace, and the peace of God only comes in the grace of God. Romans chapter five verses one and two. Paul writes, Therefore having been justified by faith we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So that peace that we have with God comes through the grace of God. Because the saints in Corinth have placed their faith in Christ Jesus, they have access to the grace of God. And they experience the peace of God that comes from peace with God. The peace of God comes in no other way than through peace with God. This grace and peace come from God, our Father, and, capital letters in my notes here, (laughs) the Lord Jesus Christ. The grace and peace come from both of them. The, cou- the coupling together of God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ indicates Paul's Christology. That is his view of the deity of Christ. Jesus is the creator and co-equal in essence with God the Father and the Holy Spirit. And we see also at the end of this letter, uh, 2 Corinthians thirteen fourteen, the last verse, he says the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, that would be the Father, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Paul states in this benediction the triunity of God that we find hinted at in the Old Testament and explicitly taught in the New. The Lord our God, the Lord is one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Trinity is not a centuries late development in Christian doctrine, but it was there from the beginning. The expression God our Father reminds us that we are children of God. Yet not in the same exact sense as Jesus is the Son of God. As Guzik says, we are sons of God not by nature, but by election. Not by ancestry, but by adoption. Not by right, but by redemption. Although in redemption, Jesus has given us the right. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3-5, through 5, we read, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort." Who comforts us in all our tribulation that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, in us so our consolation also abounds through Christ. There's a lot of comforting going on there. God is blessed. He says, blessed be the God and Father, but uh, it's literally God is to be praised. It's not the same as the Sermon on the Mount where blessed is a different word. It means happy, joyful, is the one who. But this is uh, God is to be praised. He who is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. Jesus is the unique or one and only Son of the only true God. It has been translated as the only begotten Son of God. The Greek word means single of its kind or only. It is used of only sons or only daughters that is viewed in relation to their parents. And of course it is used of Jesus of Nazareth, the Jewish Messiah, as the only human being conceived directly by the Holy Spirit. When Mary inquired how she would bear a son since she was a virgin, the angel Gabriel told her in in Luke 1.35, he told her the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. This is a unique situation that didn't happen to anyone else ever. (laughs) But to Jesus of Nazareth. God's amazing plan is that through His only begotten Son and the work He would accomplish as the sacrificial Lamb of God for all of mankind's sins, a multitude of sons would be born of God. This was God's plan from the beginning. These are the ones Paul refers to as saints in verse 1. If you're born again by God's Spirit, you are a saint. One set apart for God. One made holy for God's purpose. It doesn't mean you've been canonized. It doesn't mean that you're perfect in your behavior. In Hebrews chapter 2, starting in verse 9, he says, um, he's talking about all things being put under Jesus. He says, we don't see all things under him now, but in verse 9 he says, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor that he by the grace of God might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. So it's the purpose of God bringing many sons to glory. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. That's, that's amazing. Saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. This truly is amazing grace. Jesus is the one and only Son of God by nature. The only begotten Son of God. But he came to open the door for many sons of God to be brought to the glory of God. We will never be sons of God by nature. He is the one and only. But we are made sons of God by faith through the sacrifice offered by Christ Jesus. Sons of God by adoption into his family and partakers of the divine nature. Amazing. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 as His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature. That's, that's God's nature. The Holy Spirit coming. Having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. God sends His Holy Spirit into the hearts of those who trust in Christ and they are born again by the Spirit of God. In Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4, we're told when the fullness of the time had come, just at the right time, the time that God had planned beforehand, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. He calls us joint heirs in another verse. Heirs with Christ. He's not ashamed to call us brethren. We're partakers of His nature, His divine nature through the Holy Spirit that indwells us. I don't think we probably realize that enough as we're going about our, our daily lives, our identity in Him. In John chapter 1 and verse 12, we are told, As many as received Him, to them He gave the right or the authority to become children of God to those who believe in His name. Jesus, as the only Son of God the Father, has granted those who come to Him in faith to become sons of God. And He's not ashamed to call them brothers. What a privileged place we have in His household. Wiersbe says, It's because of Jesus Christ that we call God Father and even approach Him as His children. God sees us in His Son and He loves us as He loves His Son. He quotes John 17:23, part of this prayer of uh, Jesus. At the end of that verse, He says, You have loved them as you have loved Me, praying to the Father. I mean... Think of the love that God has for his only begotten Son. He has the same love for us who are in Christ. Wiersby says, We are beloved of God, quotes Romans 1 7, where he says to all who are in Rome, Beloved of God, called to be saints. And we are beloved of God because we are accepted in the beloved. Ephesians 1 6, the to the praise of the glory of His grace by which He made us accepted in the Beloved. That's the only place somebody can be accepted with God is in the Beloved, in Jesus. He says, whatever the Father did for Jesus when He was ministering on earth, He is able to do for us today. We are dear to the Father because His Son is dear to Him. And we are citizens of the kingdom of His dear Son or the Son of His love. Colossians 1.13 which talks about conveying us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. Out of the kingdom of darkness, into the kingdom of His Son. We're precious to the Father, and He will see to it that the pressures of life will not destroy us. So this one who is the Father of Jesus is also to be praised because He is the Father of mercies. All mercies originate with Him. If it were not for the mercies of God, we would not survive. His mercies are born of His compassion, sometimes expressed as bowels of mercies. That's that feeling you get inside when you have such empathy for somebody that it affects your, you know, you feel it in your body. He has pity upon those who are in need. There's a common phrase repeated often throughout the Old Testament. Uh, It's first found in a song by David in 1 Chronicles 16.34. I didn't check. This is probably also a psalm somewhere in the book of Psalms uh, because some of David's songs in the text you find there. 1 Chronicles 16.34, this is the phrase, "Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His mercy endures forever. He is recognized as good because His mercy endures forever. This phrase is repeated forty-two in 42 verses in the Old Testament. The last being Jeremiah thirty-three eleven. If we read in verse 10, Jeremiah writes, Thus says the Lord, again there shall be heard in this place, of which you say it is desolate without man and without beast, in the cities of Judah, in the streets of Jerusalem that are desolate, Without man and without inhabitant and without beast, the voice of joy and voice of gladness. The voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride. If we leave out that parenthetical, it's thus says the Lord again. There shall be heard in this place the voice of joy and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the voice of those who will say praise the Lord of hosts for the Lord is good, for his mercy endures forever. All of those who will bring the sacrifice of praise into the house of the Lord. I'm sorry, and of those. For I will cause the captives of the land to return as at the first, says the Lord. So Jeremiah is this weeping book of judgment (laughs) throughout, you know. And here he says, I'll cause the captives of the land to return. The voice of joy and gladness is going to be heard again. Again, for the Lord is good, for his mercy endures forever. His mercy endures forever is found abundantly in Psalm 136, a psalm of thanksgiving, where each of the 26 verses ends with, for his mercy endures forever. There's one other thing that we're told endures forever, and that's in Psalm 117, verses 1 and 2. That's the whole psalm. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Laud him, all you peoples, for his merciful kindness is great toward us. There's the mercy again and the truth of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. In uh, Psalm 25 and verse 10, we're told all the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth. It's mercy and His truth coupled together. To such as keep His covenant and His testimonies. If you're in that new covenant, then all the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth to you. In Psalm 118, uh, verses 1-4, through four. this is a messianic psalm. It's the one about the, the uh, stone that the builders rejected. And it's about Hosanna saved now. It's, it's called out by the people as Jesus rides into Jerusalem. But in the first verses of Psalm 118, it says, "Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His mercy endures forever. That, that entire phrase is repeated a number of times, the part with giving thanks to the Lord. Let Israel now say, His mercy endures forever. Let the house of Aaron now say, His mercy endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord now say, His mercy endures forever. Includes everybody, all of His people. And the very last verse of that psalm is, "Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His mercy endures forever. The Lord might be trying to tell us something. If mercies exist, they are of God. And He is the only true source of mercy. We think of mercy as God not giving us what we deserve. He's withholding that judgment that we do deserve. We deserve judgment. He gives us love and compassion. He provides the way of escape from sin and death. From a perverse world. From a perishing world. A world that is passing away. We deserve death. He gives us life. Life from the dead. In Micah chapter 7 and verse 18 Micah says, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity, passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. This is the heart of God. He delights in mercy. He doesn't delight in in judgment, in punishment for sin. And so he wants his mercy to be proclaimed along with his grace, along with the gospel of Jesus This is the nature, the character of God, how he is misconstrued, how he is misrepresented, how he is misunderstood, and how he is misapprehended. The Lord is good and his mercy endures forever. The devil does not want man to know this. And so this is something that we want to proclaim to those who need to know. In Psalm 130, verses three and four, he says, "If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities; if you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you, that you may be feared." In Psalm uh, later in that Psalm, verses seven and eight, he says, "O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is mercy, and with him is abundant redemption, and he shall redeem Israel from all his iniquities." Even in judgment, he remembers mercy. James chapter 2 and verse 13. James says, For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. We want to be showing mercy. And he says, Mercy triumphs over judgment. The mercy of God is available to anyone who will come to him. And that mercy will triumph over any judgment that might be in handwriting against them. Because they've broken God's law and God's commandments. This is similar to what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Habakkuk chapter 3 and verse 2. Habakkuk says, O Lord, I have heard your speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. This is a prayer that God delights to answer in wrath. Remember mercy. Titus chapter 3 verses 4 through 7. When the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared not by works of righteousness which we have done but according to his mercy he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. That having been justified by His grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. There's us being heirs with Jesus again. What He has coming as an inheritance, He will share with us. It's Romans 8.17 says, If we're children, then we're heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Redemption begins with uh, with the mercy of God. His grace is poured out Upon us, because He is merciful and His mercy endures forever. He is the Father of mercies. In Psalm 103 and verse 13, we're told, As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear Him. To pity is to love, to love deeply, to have mercy, to be compassionate, to have tender affection, to have compassion. Lamentations chapter 3, verses 22 and 23 um New King James says, through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed because his compassions fail not they are new every morning. great is your faithfulness. Um, this is where we get that tremendous song, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. it's you know in a different translation a different because his mercies are new every morning. Later in that chapter, lamentations three thirty two and thirty three this is Jeremiah who writes this also. He says, though he causes grief, yet he will show compassion according to the multitude of his mercies. The, this multitude of his mercies is a thought that's found six times in the Old Testament. The first time it's, it's written is in Psalm 51. David's psalm of repentance from his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. The multitude of his mercies. And then in verse 33, he says, For he does not afflict willingly nor grieve the children of men. This is not God's first choice. It's his very last resort to afflict men. He does not afflict them willingly. And only for their good. So our God is, in verse 3, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and the God of some comfort. He's the God of all comfort. (laughs) If there's any comfort to be had, it will be from His hand that the comfort comes. We're also exhorted to comfort one another with the comfort that we receive from God, as we read in this passage, but the sole source of all true comfort is God Himself. We comfort one another with His comfort, the comfort that He provides. Uh, J. Vernon McGee says, people turn to all sorts of things for comfort. We know that's true. We did. (laughs) There's a whiskey called Southern Comfort. Well, I'm a Southerner, but that is not a comfort, my friend. (laughs) That will ruin a home. Others turn to drugs for comfort, but there is no comfort there. There is a genuine comfort which is from God and a counterfeit comfort which is from the world. And that counterfeit comfort breaks down. It doesn't last. God's comfort. You know, we we have those things we put on our beds called comforters. And you snuggle up in it, you know. God's comfort lasts. It remains. Comfort is given by God because comfort is needed. Sometimes we might pretend or think that we don't need to be comforted, but God gives comfort because comfort is needed by us. Damien, as Damien Kyle says, this is not just given to us for plaque material to hang on our walls. It is where real life happens. God's people find themselves in life situations where they are in need of being comforted. Perhaps every day. As His mercy endures forever, His comfort has no limitation. He doesn't He doesn't say, Oh, it's you again. Weren't you just here? Just sit over there and I'll get to you eventually. Like when I get time. Thank God that He's not limited by time. He's not like the doctor who has a patient visit scheduled every 15 minutes and must move on. He's able to comfort each one who comes to him, not dividing himself, but giving himself wholly to each one in need. If you find yourself in need of comfort, encouragement, then draw near to the Lord. Spend time in His presence. Spend time in His Word and in prayer. And there's nothing wrong with reaching out to other believers. They have His Spirit. And they can provide the comfort that comes from God. In Acts 4.36, we're we're told about a man named, uh, Acts 4.36, a man named Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles. This was not his real name, but this is how we know him as (laughs) Barnabas. And uh, that's translated son of encouragement in the New King James, but son of comfort. It's the same word that's used here in verse uh, 3. Pariklaeus, or Laces paraclesis paraclesis he was a levite of the country of cyprus but seek god first he's the god of all comfort now this word comforts an interesting word you probably have some familiarity with it the word is paraclesis it's a calling or a near a, a calling to, a summons to call near especially for help uh, it's found in John 14 verses 15 through 17 where Jesus is ministering to his apostles. He tells them this, if you love me, keep my commandments and I will pray the Father and he will give you another helper. This is Paraletos, Paraletos, Paracletos. I'm, I'm trying to pronounce this. <laughs> Paracletos. And we know that, you know, he's called the Paraclete, the Holy Spirit. He's, the comfort from God or the encouragement or the Helper. He, he says, I'll pray the Father. He'll give you another Helper that He may abide with you forever. The Spirit of Truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him, but you know Him for He dwells with you and will be in you. Um, it's also translated in one place as, or a couple places probably as an intercessor, a consoler, an advocate, a comforter, First John 2, 1. My little children, these things I write to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. That's our same, same word. He's our defender, our helper when we need help. A definition uh, is also given as exhortation, admonition, encouragement. Those three things are part of a, a large component of uh, parakletos is encouragement. As a matter of fact, there are books written about 2 Corinthians that are called you know, being encouraged because this word is found so much. And forms of this word are found so much in 2 uh, Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 3, speaking of the gift of prophecy, says, He who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. And so those same... Definitions of this word are found uh, in the gift of prophecy. Uh, That word is paramuthia to men. It's a different word, but it's uh, similar and related to that word. David Guzik says the idea behind this word for comfort in the New Testament is is always more than soothing sympathy. It has the idea of strengthening, of helping, of making strong. So we see the overarching result in the idea of encouragement. Another definition is consolation, comfort, solace, that which affords comfort or refreshment. And it's used of the messianic salvation the rabbis call the Messiah the consoler or the comforter. The word periclesis or some form of the word is used often in 2 Corinthians. Uh, Wiersbe points out one of the key words in this letter is comfort or encouragement. The Greek word means called to one side to help. That's paraclete. The verb is used 18 times in this letter. And the noun is used 11 times. You don't always pick up on that because it's translated different ways in different passages. It's used 10 times in chapter 1 in verses 1 through 11. This word or a form of this word. We'll look at some of those in the future. He says, in spite of all the trials he experienced, Paul was able by the grace of God to write a letter saturated with encouragement. The major basis of the Lord's comfort, his encouragement, is that his presence will be with us at all times. As we read in John 14, verse 16, he says, I'll pray the Father, he'll give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans; I will come to you. Now, King James translate this this word "I will not leave you" comfortless, which uh, fits with the context of the passage, but the word actually means orphans. I won't leave you; I won't leave you fatherless, brotherless. I will come to you, and the way he comes is in the person of the Holy Spirit. He says, a little while longer and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live. You will live also at that day. You will know that I am in my father and you in me and I in you. We find in Hebrews 13 verses five and six, he tells us, let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have for he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. So God's word of encouragement and comfort to his people is always, I will be with you. And God's presence is God's comfort. It is said to Isaac, I'll be with you. To to Jacob, to Joshua, Joshua had great need of encouragement. And God encouraged him numerous times to be strong and courageous. And the basis of that exhortation he he told Joshua is, I will be with you. And that's where we get this quotation in Hebrews. He tells Joshua, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He says, I'll be with you to Gideon, to Jeremiah, to Zerubbabel. And where it's not explicitly stated, it is implied. For example, with Noah, with Abraham, with David. And there could be many others. There was a situation, an interesting situation after the golden calf incident. Uh, Exodus 33 verses 1 through 3. So they've you know worshipped this idol and had the subsequent happenings. In verse uh, chapter 33 verse 1, it says the Lord said to Moses, Depart and go up from here. You and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt. You know there were times where they were the people Moses has brought out of the land of Egypt, and there were times where it's the people. You know the Lord says I brought out. Uh, at one point he tells Moses, You Your people. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, they're, they're always God's people as well. So he says, the, the people you have brought out of the land of Egypt to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your descendants, I will give it, and I will send my angel before you, capital A, angel, and I will drive out the Canaanite and the Amorite and the Hittite and the Parasite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. He says, Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in your midst lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. You know, I, you know they, they could raise, everybody could raise their hand, you know. I will not go up in your midst, he tells Moses. And in verse 12 then, Moses says to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found grace in my sight. Now, therefore, I pray, if I have found grace in your sight, show me now your way that I may know you and that I may find grace in your sight and consider that this nation is your people. (laughs) Don't call them my people, Lord, or your people. (laughs) And he said, the Lord replies, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. That's where rest is as well, in the presence of the Lord. Then he said to him, uh, Moses speaking, If your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. For how then will it be known that your people and I have found grace in your sight, except you go with us? So we shall be separate, your people and I, from all the people who are upon the face of the earth. And so the Lord said to Moses, I, also, I will also do this thing that you have spoken, for you have found grace in my sight, and I know you by name. And then Moses says, Please show me your glory. And this is where the cleft of the rock comes in. And he declares the name of the Lord as he passes by. And he tells Moses, you can see my hinder parts, but no man can see my face and live. The promise of his presence was given as a promise to Israel in Isaiah 43 verses 1 and 2. Isaiah says, now thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, fear not. For I have redeemed you, I have called you by your name, you are mine. And then he says, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overflow you, and when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flames scorch you. And of course, Jesus promises his presence to New Testament believers to the end of the age and beyond because we shall ever be with him you know in Matthew 28:20 20, part of the great commission he says lo I'm with you always even to the end of the age so he's with us now to the end of the age and then we're with him so no matter which it is we're in his presence he's with us or later we're where he is and he says and Paul writes' we'll, wherever he is we'll always be with the Lord we'll be where he is John 14:16. Again, I'll pray the Father; He'll give you another Helper that He may abide with you forever. Now, one final word on this comfort: Philippians chapter two, verses one through eleven. This passage he starts by saying, "Therefore, if there is any consolation, and that's paraklesis—that's our word comfort—and uh, if any comfort." So that's the other word, paramath- Uh So in 2 Corinthians, the word consolation here is translated comfort, and the opposite way, comfort is translated consolation. So they're they're pretty close in meeting if they can be if they can interchange being translated. He says, if there's any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. So this is based on uh, his consolation, his comfort, his affection, his mercy, his fellowship, this exhortation that's coming Being of one mind, he says in verse three, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look not only look out, not only for his own interest, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So this this mindedness that we are to have of Christ is based on the comfort, the consolation, the mercy. That's what this exhortation is about. He's saying if, if any of these things have a reality, then... Have the mind in you that's in Christ Jesus. And this is the mind that, although he equal with God, he humbled himself, became obedient to the cross, and then God exalted him. So we're to have his mindset of humility and obedience because of his comfort. If you receive the comfort that is in God, let your mind be set in the same attitude in which his mind was set in humility and obedience is also exaltation. Matthew twenty-three, twelve, several other places in the New Testament. Uh, Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. So we're to have that mindset because we're aware of the consolation, the comfort, the fellowship, the mercy, the affection of God toward us.